Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this Best of Risk episode, you'll hear Sean Patton. What you mean you ain't going to give me that poo-poo? You always give me the poo-poo. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just wanted to let you guys know I am almost completely nude. I am wearing almost nothing right now except for a pair of underwear, and they're the best underwear I have ever worn. Now, stop it. Stop thinking I'm just doing an advertisement here because I really mean it. Mac Weldon. These new Mac Weldon underwears that I am in the process of wearing right now, they are so damn comfortable. They're so good looking. They're so scientifically engineered to stay clean. Mac Weldon is better than whatever the fuck you're wearing now. They believe in smart design premium fabrics, simple shopping. You'll never find more comfortable underwear, socks, shirts. They have this silver underwear line. That's what I'm wearing right now. They are naturally antimicrobial. That means they're going to stay clean and fresh. The guy at Mack Weldon said you could wear it all week long. This will be terrible news for this. One of my boyfriends is very much into making underwear absolutely filthy i don't like it i don't like it but you know to each his own but seriously guys mac weldon's underwear socks shirts they look so good they feel so good this takes all the guesswork out of having to you know go shopping for this stuff I personally highly recommend it and i'm kind of hoping for that they send me a lifetime supply Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off for using the promo code R-I-S-K. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Get 20% off for using the promo code RISK. Also, even if trips to the post office have become second nature to you, I mean, even if they seem easy, (laughs) they certainly don't here in New York City. 
you can do your mailing and shipping in a much more hassle-free way. You can avoid dropping what you're doing and having to drive somewhere and find parking and all that. The better way is stamps.com. That's the easy and convenient way to get postage right from your own desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. With stamps.com, there's no guesswork. They make it easy to get the exact postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail the instant you need it no expensive postage meters to lease and no more trips to the post office you got to try it we use stamps.com at risk and the story studio and we love it and right now you can sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code risk for this special offer it's a four-week trial plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus offer including postage and a digital scale so don't wait go to stamps.com before you do anything else Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Kid Stone behind me now. And this is the best of Risk number 10. The 10th installment of our, you know, every four or five months, we like to feature five of our favorites from the past several months. I mean, you know, it's always so hard to choose. And there's always stories that are just too long. Uh, You know, like there's Leslie Sisson's story, The Long Road, which was an entire episode to itself. I mean, that is not to be missed to go back and find that one. A couple of the reasons that we like to do these best of risk episodes are for newcomers, for folks who might not have heard the show before to give them a really, you know, powerful taste of the various kinds of stories we feature and also for people in the press so if you know anyone who writes for any particular publication who might write about our show or if you just know someone who 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 might have never downloaded the show before get them listening to these best of compilations and eventually they'll realize every episode of risk is not to be missed Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear an absolutely gorgeous, really moving story that Christine Gentry shared with us when we were last in Boston, Massachusetts. But before that, we're going to start with an absolutely ridiculous story that Sean Patton shared with us when we were most recently in San Francisco. So here he is now, the hilarious Mr. Sean Patton, with a story we call Whiteout. Hello! 
There's so much shit up here. All right. Time. Uh, I don't, I drink a lot. I drink a lot. It is part of my, I, I'm raised in New Orleans. I have the privilege of having drunk relatives and drunk parents and just drunk. And so it's part of my life drinking. I'll never quit because I'm not bad at it. I'm pretty fucking good. So, however, I do not, under any circumstance, black out. It has never happened to me once. I'm in my 30s. I drink all the God, five times a week. Five nights, yes. Five nights a week I drink. I've never blacked out once in my entire life. And I've tried very hard. I have had those seven-hour drinking sessions till five in the morning where I mix bourbon and vodka and gin and Oxycontin and fucking chartreuse and Zima. Remember Zima? I drank all of it. 1999, one night. Like, I do not black out. I experience other levels of drunk. One of them I call medieval drunk. It's happened to me quite a few times here in San Francisco where I get so wasted, I, I become fucking knight. I become Sir Sean. My friends are like, hey, you want to go to another bar? And I'm like, yes! A crusade! I see a homeless man like, beware a warlock. Give him but a shilling, yet heed my warning. Look not into his eyes, for there be spells. That's the happy version. The sad version of that I call thespian drunk. Self-explanatory. I just become a little drama boy. Like, my friend's like, hey, Sean, you want another beer? No, dear friend, look away from me. I am ugly. Look away, avert your eyes. I wish not to scar thy memory with my hideous being. Run away from me so I may chase you. That is the only form of friendship I deserve. I am the human condition on wheels. But I do not black out. I do not. And a lot of people say to me, well, that's a, that's a blessing. Nay, it's a curse. Because I still get to that level. I still get to blackout drunk level where logic and reason become the Mr. Hyde versions of themselves. I still get there. Only I remember it all. I don't get to say, I don't remember, because I do. In, in HD. On a 75-inch plasma screen in 3D. And the memories were shot on film, 70 millimeter. I remember all of it. In fact, what often ends up happening is I'll call a friend to apologize for some crazy shit I did. And thus, I remind them of the crazy shit I did that they'd forgotten about because they blocked out. So many times I've heard friends of mine say things like, Oh, yeah, you did kiss me. Or, oh, yeah, you did bite me. Or, oh, yeah, you did try to light my wallet on fire. Or, oh, yeah, fuck you. 
I call it whiteout drunk. Because it's, it's where you try to go back and cover up the mistakes you've made. But they're still there. They'll always be there. The closest I've ever come to blacking out was May 2001, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. There you go. I was at a house party thrown by some co-workers of mine. I worked in a kitchen. I was 22 years old. They were 25. So they were a few years older, and their party was a few years nicer. In the sense that we weren't drinking cans of fucking natural light, you know? We were drinking cans of PBR. That's, that's the difference between 22 and 25-year-old nice. And I remember just pounding cans of PBR like I was in a rush to build a tin fort out of those cans and with the remaining cans start a meth lab inside of it. I remember getting hammered. That moment where you're like, yep, I'm here. I remember it. I remember then having to pee. I remember standing in line to use the bathroom. I remember loudly Outkast's Bombs Over Baghdad playing. This was 2001. Stankonia had just come out. It was a fresh track, okay? The chorus to that song, don't pull your thing out unless you fit to bang it. I remember thinking, I want to pull my thing out and bang the toilet. I had to piss. I remember removing a cigarette, flipping it in my mouth, and catching it on the first try and trying to pretend like I do it all the time. And then I remember the equal amount of surprise after I lit it when I realized I'd caught it backwards and just lit the filter. And I remember that taste of burning cigarette filter. And it was quickly forgotten when I looked into the kitchen and saw the woman I was in love with making out with another man. Mm. I'd loved her since the moment I met her. It was maybe an hour, hour and a half before <laughs> that. I remember not truly being able to remember her name to actually get mad and confront her. Like, how the fuck did you do that, Stan? Andrew? Stan? Andrew? Stan? Andrew? Stan, Stan? I knew it was either Stacia or Andrea. So I just meshed them into Standria. How did you fucking do this, Standria? She was making out with a gentleman named Sweet Tea. That was his name. Sweet Tea. He was a fuck. Now here's the thing about Sweet Tea. We all knew Sweet Tea. He was an older gentleman. We all worked in the kitchen, so he sold us all weed and pills. He was a gangster, but he was a suburban thug, which are the fucking worst. You don't know what a suburban thug is. It's the person whose parents are both dentists, like Sweet Teas were. Both dentists. He was raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, son of dentist, yet he was still hard as fuck. Gangster. You don't know what it's like in my hood? No, we don't, sweet tea, because it's a gated subdivision. We don't have the code. None of us have the code to make the gate open. Otherwise, we'd walk a mile in one of your many, many pairs of sneakers, I imagine. The fucking loser. She was sucking face with him. And that broke me. You remember your first heartbreak? It hurts. And I remember in that moment, I was no longer Sean, the innocent boy. I was now Sean the wolf. I was a fucking animal now. 
And I remember I was no longer going to wait in line like a sheep to use the bathroom. No, I was going to piss in the street like a goddamn wolf. I piss where I choose. And I remember whilst pissing in the street like this animal I'd become, I was suddenly ambushed by my colon. That's that moment when you got to shit now. Where you're faced with two options. Shit into the infinity that is outside of your pants. No regrets. Or shit into your pants and regret it for infinity. But I was a wolf now, an animal. When you're a fucking animal, there's always a third option. And I remember choosing that third option, which was, I'm gonna take a shit on a random car parked out on the street. And I remember my drunken logic so clearly, which was, I'm gonna shit on a car like Standra's shit on my heart. I was a wolf, I was a wolf. And wolves are kind of like dogs. And when dogs get mad at their owners, they do things like tear up their shoes or piss in the bed or pull up the carpet. Standria owned my heart and she pissed me off. So I wanted to let her know it by pooping on a stranger's car. That's really the only explanation I have for it. I can remember feeling like, I just want to ruin someone's night. But then I remember remembering that I would need something to wipe myself with. Because I'm not a savage. Yes, I was about to take a dump on a stranger's automobile. But even in that state, I care about things like hygiene. It's very important. I remember then going back into the house party where there was no more line for the bathroom. The bathroom was now vacant. I remember going into that bathroom, locking the door behind me. I remember staring at that toilet for a while. It was almost like we had an argument. Like that toilet said, what you mean you ain't gonna give me that poo-poo? You always give me the poo-poo. And I replied, because it ain't your poo-poo, it's my poo-poo. I decide what to do with the poo-poo. And the toilet said, you ain't strong enough to make poo-poo-based decisions, you weak. So I flushed it, sent it away with no prize. The tyranny of the toilet was over. There was no toilet paper, of course, standard house party, but there was a bunch of clean white hand towels, folded and clean. I snatched up one of those. Fine, so be it. This will last. I then remember choosing the automobile. You. Subaru Outback. Wrong parking place, wrong time. I remember the debate. Roof or windshield? How many of you, by a round of applause, would have chosen roof? Okay. How many of you would have chosen windshield? Okay, okay. 
How many of you don't think you'd ever find yourself in that situation? Wow, that's cute. May you never be broken then. The correct answer for the handful of us who read Sun Tzu's The Art of War is Ruth, okay? You shit on the windshield, they're gonna see that, if not when they walk up as soon as they get into the car. You shit on the roof like I did, it was kinda dark. They could miss it. They could drive a couple blocks and stop at a stop sign and whoop, here comes that shit. Element of surprise. Inertia plus gravity equals fuck you, stranger. It's Bernoulli's principle. That's how it's written. I then remember just circling the car for a while, staring at my accomplishment, and then deciding that everyone else needed to see it. And I drunkenly ran back into the house party and announced, I just saw someone shitting on a car, and then they ran away. And I joyfully watched as all the people ran to see whose car had just been defecated on. They came back in, some laughing, some crying even. And I think I truly expected Standria, the woman I loved, to come back in and be a little more interested in me now that I had some journalism skills. You know what I mean? I report the hard facts. Instead, however, Sweet Tea came back in. Sweet Tea and announced, I'm about to murder whoever just shit all over my dead girlfriend's car, man. Yeah, I know. I was there. Whoops. Now, upon hearing the threat of murder, I had what's known as a physical blackout. Mentally, you're still there. But physically, your body senses danger and alert. We are alert. Danger is afoot. Evacuate. I skedaddled, got into my car. I was in no place to be behind the wheel of the car. I was very fucked up. My apartment was only 10 minutes away, but I was far too hammered to drive 10 minutes away. So I drove 90 minutes away to my parents' house. I think if you live close enough to mom and dad, you've had the same reaction where you got wasted one night, knew you were going to regret it the next day, and thought, I got to go back to the beginning. I got to go back to where it all started and remember who I was. And the next morning, I woke up in my parents' driveway, engine running, Headlights as bright as that 9 a.m. sun. That could have been a moment, couldn't it? That could have been a real, like, huh? What the fuck? But no, it wasn't, because I don't black out. Instead, it was a, huh? Oh, good, I put it in park. And I reached into my back pocket, and I was like, oh, what's that? But I knew what it was as soon as I made contact with it. I was like, oh, yeah. It's a clean white hand towel. Clean as the moment I'd taken it off that rack. Because I guess the only time I ever blacked out was when I was supposed to remember to wipe my ass after shitting on a dead woman's Subaru Outback. And in my other back pocket was absolutely nothing, which I found peculiar at first because what normally goes there is my wallet. (laughs) 
Don't worry, it hadn't fallen out of my pocket and was on top of the car when Sweet Tea... Fa- it, it wasn't in Sweet Tea's possession. That's far too Hollywood of an ending. No, no, no. I knew exactly where my wallet was. The night before, on that drunken drive home, I threw it into the Mississippi River. <laughs> While crossing it for a second time... Because the first time, I was going the wrong way. And I remember everything about that decision. I was like, oh my God, I'm fucking hammered. If I get pulled over, I'm going to jail forever. Unless I get rid of all evidence of me. (laughs) Now they can't arrest me. I'm just a ghost. I'm lucky I'm not a ghost who pooped on the car of another ghost. (laughs) Now, a couple days later, I decided to call my friend Jeremy, who was throwing the party, because I was going to apologize and confess to pooping on the car. And And I call him, and like it's happened so many times before, he instead goes, wait, you don't know? And here's what I later learned, okay? What, what we, like, he explained to me in the moment. Basically, Sweet Tea's girlfriend had died about a year earlier. But she died of completely natural causes. That was very sad. However, Sweet Tea, this is what he told me. Sweet Tea was so fucking upset about the poop on the car that he caused a ruckus at that house party. He was just trying to fucking murder people. So Jeremy, whose house it was, had to call the cops. The cops showed up. Sweet Tea was going bananas. They fucking tried to arrest him. He resisted arrest, so when they finally arrested him, they now had probable cause to search his car. In the glove compartment of that Subaru Outback, they found a Glock 19 that they traced back to two shootings in the month prior. To my knowledge, Sweet Tea is still in Angola prison. So, it turns out that my intestines are like Watson and Holmes. You know what I'm saying? There's a premonition. And the cops didn't arrest anyone for the shit on the car because that's not illegal. It's America. (laughs) And all I know is this, like, so many times I've told people what they did the night before, they blacked out and their reaction's always like, oh God, I need to quit drinking. I'm gonna fucking die one day. But I remember after hearing all this from Jeremy, my thought was, oh man, I need to keep drinking. Because I save lives. Justice gets served when I'm wasted. Thank you very much, San Francisco. So it's 2012, and I'm scrolling through Facebook, and in between, you know, cat videos and Foursquare check-ins, because it's 2012, um, I see a post from an old friend of mine. Actually, I hadn't seen her in years. Uh, we were really close my first year of teaching, um, and the post was, I'm dying. 
I was like, I'm dying. My kidneys are completely giving up on me. All of my friends and family have already tried to donate a kidney to me, and this is my last resort. So Facebook, is somebody willing to donate a kidney to me? And I dropped everything and sent her a message. I was like, I am so sorry. I didn't even know you were sick. Um, we haven't spoken in a while, but like, absolutely, you know, what do I need to do? And thus began this really intense series of tests. So I don't know if you guys know, but it's incredibly difficult to be approved to donate a kidney, which is why all of her friends and family had been rejected. So they run every test you can possibly run on a human being, including a pretty intense psychological exam. And if they find one thing wrong with you, they say no. Um, but I was very lucky, and I got approved to donate. But Julia and I, as a couple, were not as lucky because I could not directly give my kidney to her. We were not a direct match. Um, so it's a way more complicated than I have time to explain to you. But like, you can't. You have to be blood type, tissue type, antigen, and a bunch of other stuff, right? So I couldn't directly give my kidney to Julia. But we were approved to go into this really cool system called the National Kidney Swap Registry. So it's this algorithm. It's amazing computer that tries to take all of the incompatible donor recipient pairs across the country and figure out if I can give my kidney to some random person in the country that I'm a match to and then further down this swap chain Julia will get one right so we go into the system and the computer gets to work and it's trying to figure out how to make a chain and at the very last minute Julia directly matches with someone else and my kidney is not needed guys it was amazing to watch the transformation of my friend Julia, right? She was not being hyperbolic on Facebook, right? She was attached to dialysis, which is basically the machine from Princess Bride, you know? Like, she was going home every day and hooking herself up and being like, please don't go to 50. Like, that was her day. And this one surgery just... Every time I saw her, she was like a, a new and happier person. And then last year, she got pregnant. She had a baby. And I was looking at this child, and I was like, oh my god, like, this new life, and every life that will be touched by it only exists because someone was willing to donate their kidney, and I just couldn't, I just couldn't justify not doing it for a stranger. So I called the same organization, and I said, this time, I want to donate my kidney to anyone. I want to be what you guys call a good Samaritan donor. And it had been long enough to where they made me go through all the testing again, but again, I was very lucky. I got approved, and this time it moved very quickly. I mean, within two weeks of my testing, the surgery date was set, and the computer was loving it, because this time, I didn't go in with any conditions, right? Last time, I went in with a very complicated condition, which was Julia, right? Julia has to receive one. And this time, I'm like, I'll give it to anybody. Kidney for you. Kidney for you. <laughs> and the computer was like, awesome. And it got to work. And it, it figured out the longest possible chain, right? It was like, oh, my God, she can give her kidney to this person who's been waiting. And their incompatible donor can give their kidney to this person. And their incompatible donor can give their kidney to this person. And so when the surgery date was set, there was already a chain of 16 surgeries that my donation was going to set off, right? So I was going to pull eight people off of that monstrous, horrible wait list. Like, what an honor. And I, I struggled with how to kind of deal with, the, the, you know, the, the celerity. It was moving so quickly. And I thought, you know, like, I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want people to think that this is really weird, that I'm some kind of, like, hero or saint. So I, I chose to keep it very private. And I told very few people. Um, but I did have to choose a caretaker. So I definitely had to ask someone to take care of me. You can't do anything, basically, for the first week. And my mother is a nurse. 
seems pretty, <laughs> seems pretty obvious <laughs> that you would ask your mom, the nurse. But it was a very complicated decision for me because my relationship with my mother the last couple years has been very strained. Um, she was this glowing, like beautiful presence when I was a child and this drinking problem had entered into her life and just sucked her into this really horrible place. Like physically she was unwell. She looked 20 years older than she should have looked. Um, she was getting like slurring drunk like every night and and with it came this horrible cloud of negativity. I remember she came to visit me when I was living in New York it was basically like a jump from alcoholic-serving establishment to alcoholic-serving establishment. And if they were more than two blocks away from each other, she would complain. And we would go down into the subway and she would turn her tiny engagement ring around and say, I hear that they take your jewelry on the subway. And I was like, who are you? Who are you? you? You don't even resemble the mother that I knew when I was a child. And so, like, when I had to choose this caretaker, I was thinking, like, first of all, there's a very real risk that this woman can't stay sober, honestly, for a week to take care of me. And also, like, that kind of negativity is not something I need around me when I'm going through this major recovery. And so I wrestled with it for a couple of days, but then I finally decided to ask her, so I invited her to come up, and she could only take exactly, you know, X number of days off. So she was going to come in the night before my surgery. And as the surgery approached, I was just, I, I, guys, I was getting like, overcome with this level of, like, fear and anxiety that I'd never known before and didn't really know how to deal with. Like, the, the most extreme medical thing I'd ever been through was having my wisdom teeth removed, you know? Like, I had no idea what to expect. I had read all the things, but I had no idea what to expect as far as the actual experience. And I remember the Friday before this surgery came, like, it was now less than a week away, and I almost, like, I think I was having a panic attack. I don't know. I was, my, my palms were sweaty. I was very lightheaded. I was so afraid. I couldn't stop focusing, like, laser focus on all of the things that I'd read, you know? Like, like, what if I die on this operating table? What if I get an infection? What if my kidney dies on the runway trying to get to this person that I'm trying to help? What if one day my other kidney fails? What if someone I really love needs one and I've already given it up to like Joe Schmo, you know? Like all of these thoughts just were swirling around and I had no one to share them with or, or talk to. So I was like kind of a mess and I started frantically cleaning my apartment and I found this bag of clothes that I had shoved into the corner probably years ago that needed to be like tailored and repaired and I was like perfect perfect distraction so I go on Yelp and I'm like searching for the closest tailor and sure enough there was someone who who worked right out of her apartment literally down the street from mine and her name was Brunhilda <laughs> and I was like yes that Brunhilda, that's exactly what I need. And I give her a call, and of course she's available. The thick German accent when she answers the phone. I was like, this is, this is perfect, this is meant to be. And so I start walking down the street to Brunhilda's apartment, and it's February, it's Boston, it's snowing, I'm crying, it's all very emo. <laughs> and I have my bag of clothes, and I get to Brunhilda's apartment, and she opens the door, and she looks exactly the way that you think she looks. Like, giant German woman, huge boobs. 
And I walk in and I open the bag of clothes and I start pulling them out to kind of explain to her the things that I needed done to them. And she cuts me off. She says, honey, what's wrong? <laughs> and my, my bottom lip starts quivering and I said, oh, Brunhilde. <laughs> I'm donating a kidney on Thursday and I'm so scared. And she just grabs me. She gives me this big old hug. She's like, sinks my head in the middle of her big boobs. She's like, pawing my back. She goes, honey, you are doing a wonderful thing. You must remember to be one with the pain. <laughs> it was just this, like, it was this beautiful moment of this absolute stranger giving me exactly the thing that I so needed in that moment. And so when I was walking home from Brunhilde's house, I was like, I have to tell people about this. I have to. I mean, first of all, the only reason I even know that it's an option is because someone posted on Facebook. But also, like, I'm not okay. I'm not okay right now. And I need to own that, and I need to reach out to my support network. And of course, like as soon as I posted about it, there's just outpouring of love and support. It just so bolstered me. And like Brunhilde and I decided that I would pick up my clothes the night before the surgery on purpose. <laughs> and so I go to her apartment, you know, the night before, and she opens the door, and this time she goes, Honey, you look good. <laughs> Last week, not so good. <laughs> now you look good. And my mom flew in, you know, after I picked up my clothes, and I immediately got worried because the first thing she wanted to do was go get a burger and a couple beers. And I was like, oh, God. And I, like, kept my worry to myself. I was like, maybe it's just night before jitters. Maybe she just got to get that, you know, last beer out of her system. And uh, we came home from the restaurant, and we sat down on my bed, and where her knees were touching, and she held my hands across our laps. And I'm not even a religious person, but she said this prayer over me. She was basically just asking God to protect me, and I just felt it. I just felt this sense of peace. And I, I told her about how nervous and scared that I had been, and like how I think it's difficult for anonymous donors because you know, in 2012, it was so easy. Anytime I started to get afraid about this possibility, I would just look at Julia. I'd be like, oh, obviously, like, look at this person that I care about, who's suffering. And this time, you know, there's no palpable thing. There's no person to look at. I'm like sending my kidney onto the ether, you know? Like or in my case, Ohio. <laughs> And it's hard, you know, so I was like telling her, I was crying, I was explaining, you know, the panic attack and Brunhilde and how amazing she is. And, and my mom helped me come up. She was like, you need to give these people faces. You know, these eight people, these eight recipients that you're pulling off of the wait list, like you need to imagine what they look like. And so we came up together with this haven, you know, it was, it was based on this plaza in Barcelona that I just stumbled upon and just, it was so beautiful. Like I turned the corner and it opened up into this plaza with an old church 
and there was this big tree and it was like raining orange flowers and there was this little turquoise water fountain bubbling in the middle of it and I was the only person there and it was just the sound of my heart and like classical guitar bouncing off of the labyrinth of the Gothic Quarter. You know, it was just this magical place and so we decided that was going to be my haven and whenever I got scared, I would close my eyes and turn the corner and I would be in that plaza and I put the eight people at that fountain and every time I got scared I would just think about turning the corner and seeing those eight and being like right this is why I'm doing it and I rolled into that operating room the next day having never been more sure of anything in my life such a sense of calm and peace had come over me but I am not here to lie to you and the first few days of recovery were awful they were so hard and my mother got the crap shift she did and she did not leave my side she slept in the hospital room with me she didn't have a drop of alcohol or utter one complaint for five days and the third day that I was in the hospital, they took me off of the dilated IV drip and they tried to replace it with an oral version of the pill and my stomach was not taking it. And you guys, like, nausea is just a terrible feeling regardless. Like, you all know it. It's awful. It's objectively a terrible feeling. But when nausea is bathed in terror because you've just had major surgery and you have this giant abdominal incision and you know that if you puke, it's going to hurt so badly, like, that was the feeling that I had. And my mother was comforting me. And then I puked. Valentine's Day. It was Valentine's Day, day three. And, and I was incapacitated. And so I just puked all over myself. And so there was like the embarrassment and I'm, I'm crying and the pain, the guys, the pain, it was like every time I heaved, it was like a blacksmith had taken a newly forged spear and shoved it into my side. And my mother took this warm washcloth and she was wiping my face. And I grabbed the bars of that hospital bed crying and I said, I don't want to regret this mama. I really don't want to regret this. She was wiping my face saying, you won't, you won't, Christine, it'll get so much better. And the nurse came in and she was like, oh, we should probably try a different pill. And I grabbed her scrubs and I was like, you will never put another prescription pain medicine in my mouth. And she goes, it's really early. And I was like, I don't care. So that's how on day three of my surgery, I started recovery on just over-the-counter Tylenol. And it was my mother who pushed me to get out of bed every day, even though it hurt so badly. She said, you can walk a little further this time. I saw you touch the edge of that windowsill yesterday. I bet you can make it to the other side of that window today. And when they finally took my catheter out and I was so excited about taking a shower and then got so crushed because I couldn't do it myself. It was my mom who took me and led me from the bed and she walked me to the shower and she put the seat down in it and she took my clothes off and she sat me down in the shower and then she took her clothes off and she stepped into the shower and she closed the curtain and she bathed me so gently and we were both crying and she said, Christine, it's just like when you were a baby. I went home on day four, and my mom and my best friend took care of me for another six days, and my friends brought me more food than I can even eat, 
and my students made me homemade cards. And then I got a call from the National Kidney Registry about a month ago. And they said, Christine, the chain that you started is still going. It's 56 surgeries long. Your one decision has pulled 28 people off of the wait list. What an honor. That's more people than could ever fit around that fountain. And they said, we want you to come to our gala. It's the longest chain we've had in years. We want you to speak. And I said, absolutely, as long as I can bring my mom. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Stars behind me now. And we just heard from the wonderful Christine Gentry. This episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for the most amazing gifts you can imagine. What you do, you get for less than $20 a month, you get four to eight items in each box that you receive each month that includes licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, toys, unique one-of-a-kind items for the geeks and the gamers and the pop culture fans out there. It's more than just a subscription service, though. Loot Crate is an entire community of fans of, say, franchises like Star Wars or Marvel or The Walking Dead or The Legend of Zelda and so much more. Now, the fans all participate in the unboxing of each month's crate of goodies. So, you know, you can be part of all the fun. I mean, it's kind of like Christmas each month when you get your big box of toys and fun. <laughs> each month there's a different theme and all the items in your box will be curated around that theme for the month. So, you know, pop culture's full of brave new worlds and societies in flux. So this month it's dystopia. 
featuring classics RoboCop, Terminator 2, The Matrix, and new favorites Bioshock Infinite and Fallout 4. You get yourself a figure, cool collectibles, and of course, a dystoporific monthly t-shirt. Remember, you only have until the 19th of June at 9 p.m. Pacific time to subscribe and receive June's crate. And that's when the cutoff happens. So after that, it's over. Go to lootcrate.com slash risk and enter the code risk to save $3 off your subscription today. That's L-O-O-T-C-R-A-T-E dot com slash risk. Lootcrate.com slash risk and get your subscription today. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the wonderful Livia Scott, a great story that she shared with us at the Risk Live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn. But before that, a story that Steve DeShavi, you might know him from The Dead Files, Steve shared this radio-style story with us a little while back. We call it Simple Twist of Fate. I'm an Italian-American growing up in Brooklyn, Bensonhurst, and um, there's a very fine line between what you want to be in life when you're young. You grow up, there's gangsters everywhere. It's 1972, I'm nine years old, The Godfather comes out, so you think, oh my God, that's who I want to be. I mean, hey, who's better than a gangster? But I got a father who is a teamster, served in World War II, landed on Omaha Beach on D-Day, his four other brothers all served. I was named after my Uncle Steve who was killed in World War II. It, it, it's kind of like you're being torn between your family and the street. So for me, the street was more of a family because my older brothers both had issues that my mother was dealing with. You know, one, my oldest brother was an alcoholic. My other brother came back from Nam with the monkey on his back, was a heroin junkie. I got my father who is working all the time, I hardly ever see him. My mother's preoccupied worrying about her two other sons, so the streets became kind of my second family. You know, the guys I grew up with, and it's cliche, we all either wound up in jail or became cops. It was the craziest thing. You know, Bensonhurst was, you idolized the wise guys, you hated the cops. So now, you could fast forward, and now I'm like 13 years old. I'm in Coney Island at the Ape Stock ice skating rink. Look at me walking the streets with my brand new jacket, my Puma sneakers, and I'm with my friend Robert, and we get jumped by five 17 to 20 year old black guys. Two were beating on us, took my jacket, took my sneakers, left us in the cold. One eye was almost closed shut, I had one broken rib. Robert had a sliced uh, head, he needed stitches. Um, we were 13, getting jumped by 18, 19 year olds. So you could just picture that in your head, what it's like being surrounded. How scary that is. You're right near the boardwalk, but you're right by the projects. You're right by help, but you can't get to it. So I'm like, fuck. We're fucked. We're out here. We're freezing. We got no jackets on. We got no sneakers. And the thing that's going through my head is my father's going to kill me for allowing somebody to beat the shit out of me. How am I going to explain this? If you think of Luca Brazzi from The Godfather, that was my father. He's a scary guy, so trying to explain that, ugh, a little tough. 
I swore that day I would never be a victim again, and I never was. I started carrying weapons, carried a knife. By the time I was 14 and a half, 15, I had my own gun, carried a 38 around with me. Started doing things, you know, I'm not proud of. I was selling drugs, I was doing stick-ups, stealing cars, and I'd sell tunnel, second or volume, Librium, Talon, you name it, I sold it. I bought my first car when I was 15, but I couldn't even drive because I didn't have a fucking license, so a lot of good it did me having this fucking car. I had a 75 Cutlass Supreme, I bought cash. My father wasn't too happy about the fact that I was able to buy his car cash, so uh, I told him it was a gift from one of my friends that he had to get rid of the car, and I, you know, I made up some bullshit story. My father saw right through me, you know, there was no, no lying to him. So now, a couple of years later, I'm 17, I'm at home, the phone rings, I pick it up and it's my father to tell me, to tell mommy that um, he's not going to come home tonight because he's out, whatever he's doing. You know, my father used to drink down at the end of the, you know, the bar down the block. He drank his bourbon neat. So I just figured, you know, what's this bullshit? You're not coming home again. I haven't seen you. And we got into an argument and I said to him, I said, I said to him, why don't you just drop dead? And he did that night. The last words I said to my father was, why don't you drop dead? And I hung up the phone on him. Five hours later, I get a call that he's dead from a heart attack. Up the block, on the floor. I remember running up the block and seeing him laying there. And the cops were going to you know, was pants, and they and they hand they saw me. They handed me his wallet, and it was all wet. And I didn't understand why until later on, as a cop, I learned that when people have heart attacks, they lose all their bodily fluids, and you know everything comes out. I guess it was from the urine, and I remember holding on to this wet wallet, thinking to myself, "Why is this wallet wet?" and not realizing what the fuck is in front of me. My father's dead, and I just told him to drop dead five hours earlier. And I just thought to myself, what kind of an animal am I that I tell my father to drop dead, and then he dies? I'm 52 years old, and I still can't wrap my head around it. I mean, I was, I was 17. I didn't mean it. I really didn't mean it. I just, I didn't think he would die. So, it just... I live with that regret every day of my life, and I know people say, no, he forgives you, and I just, I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. It's just... And that's when I went off the reservation. So now I didn't have my father to deal with, worrying about him throwing me a beating for everything I did that was bad. And I had gotten thrown out of high school already at this point. And to get thrown out of Lafayette High School back then, you had to be pretty fucked up because you know it was 3,000 students. There was busing going on then. It was all kinds of shit happening, and and I was just such a bad student. I had gotten left back, and then they just they just said, you know what, you're too much trouble. Get the hell out of the school system. And I was too busy running around. You know, I'd rather hang out and I was making money hand over fish, selling drugs, doing robberies, you know, doing whatever the hell I wanted. One of my friends uh, that did a robbery that I wasn't in on, and uh, I was supposed to be there that night, but they robbed the wrong guy. They robbed some wise guy's nephew, 
And um, they fucking hung him. You can see it from the Bell Parkway in Coney Island where Pat Mark and Bensonhurst meet. There's a tree back there and they fucking hung him up. They hung him up from that tree. How am I lucky enough not to have gone on that robbery? But how am I so unlucky to tell my father to go drop dead and then he drops dead the same night? During the day, I would go down to the Sky Top Pool Hall and I'd shoot pool all day. It was the Woolworths department store. It was in Brooklyn and Bay Ridge on 5th Avenue and 86th Street. And if anybody's old enough to remember that neighborhood back then, they'll remember the Woolworths. It was the Woolworths. Second floor was all the recruiters for the armed services. And the third floor was the Sky Top Pool Hall, where I'd spent from when I was 12 on in that pool hall. And, you know, I'd hustle pool, where I'd shoot pool with the owner that was up there. He was a pretty cool guy. But the recruiters used to come up and shoot pool on their lunch hour. Because you can see the Army guy, you see the Navy guy, you see the Air Force guy, but then when you see that, that Marine, it's like, wow. That's what a man's supposed to look like in uniform. Big, tall, square-jawed fucking guy that, you know, like, six-something. You see him, you think of a fucking poster boy for the Marine Corps. And it just, it blows you away the first time you see it really up close and personal. And this guy was a Vietnam vet, so he had a rack full of medals. And it just brought me back to what it was like listening to my father and his brothers and their stories about World War II and how proud that made me. His name was Staff Sergeant Bowen. I'll never forget him. And he looked at me, he goes, because he had seen me up there a couple of times. He's like, what are you doing with your life? Why aren't you in school type of thing? And I'm like, well, fuck you care what I'm doing. It's none of your business what I'm doing. What are you writing a fucking book? You know, because that, that Guinea and me from the neighborhood came out right away. I'm like, who the fuck are you to ask me where? Don't go asking me questions, jerk off. I don't know you. He kind of snickered at me. He says, you know what? You think you're a tough guy. He says, you know what a tough guy is? This guy that wears a uniform every day. That's a tough guy. And I says, yeah, whatever. You know, my old man was, you know, then I started talking about my father. And, you know, I'm named after my uncle who was killed on November 11, 1942. So... Don't talk to me about serving your country. And he kind of looked at me and says, well, when are you going to take your fucking turn? Cause so he kind of gave it back to me, like, you know, don't be a jerk. I'm 17, I'm working out, I'm big, you know, I got muscles. Everybody in the neighborhood's pretty much terrified of me, except for the guys that I was scared of, you know. So I had that reputation. I'm like, what am I going to give this up for? But I also knew in the back of my head, I was either going to wind up in jail or I was going to get killed. I had to do something. Even at 17, I was smart enough to know, listen, asshole, don't be this stupid. So we, we talked, we went down to his office, and the next day I know, I says, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to sign up, let's go. And he goes, well, your parents got to sign for you, you're 17. And I'm like, well, fuck me. My mother will never sign, my father's dead at this point, he would have signed the papers, but my mother's never going to sign the papers, how am I going to win this? So I said, all right, listen, let me work on it, I'm going to go home, talk to my mother, and then we'll work it out where you come to the house and you can schmooze her the way you schmoozed me. And my mother's like, yeah, let him come. I'll make dinner for him. So he comes walking in. My mother sees him and, you know, she's like, wow. This, you know, she just looked at him and I, I think something in her head said, you know what? This might be a good thing for my son. I, she didn't know what she was signing, but she signed the papers within like 20 seconds when she saw this guy. And then he had down, he sat down, he had monogloth with my mother. This guy was Irish. He wouldn't know fucking Monogoth if it hit him in the head. So 
Oh, he was Polish. I forget what the hell he was. But either way, it doesn't matter. The guy got himself a good meal, and he got me uh, signed up to go into the Marines. Next thing you know, I'm in Paris Island, and I'm like, what the fuck did I do? You get off the bus at 2 o'clock in the morning, and that screamed at you to get on those yellow footprints. And unless you've been through Marine Corps boot camp, there is nothing in the world like it. And I'm like, what the fuck did I... What was I thinking? I could have been on the streets doing this, doing that, you know... (laughs) But, you know, 16 weeks later, I was a fucking Marine. There's no doubt about it. They fucking changed me from basically a punk kid. I was going nowhere. And just like that, boom, I'm a Marine now. Proud, walking straight, the whole nine yards. Next thing I know, I'm in a combat zone in the Middle East. And I'm like, what the fuck was I thinking again? (laughs) So I'm thinking to myself, all right, great. At least I'm experiencing the same thing that my father, my, you know, I felt like I was doing two things. I was honoring my father and I was getting my shit together. So now I get out of the Marine Corps because my sister was smart enough to follow me for the police test and I'm going into the police academy. And had she had not done that, I don't know where I'd be because all I knew was to be a Marine and how to fight in combat. I had no, couldn't be a plumber. You know, I didn't have any skills or any education. So I come home from police academy one night and my mother says, I haven't seen your brother. This is my brother was a heroin addict and he's always goes, you know, he disappears. We don't know what the hell he's doing. She says, I'm worried about him. You know how mothers are, they just know. And my mother was that way. She was an Italian mother who just knew. She just looked at your face and knew something was wrong or you did something or what the fuck are you hiding? You know, that's where I think I get my instincts from actually. So she said to me, just go over and check. He lived about three blocks from us in Bensonhurst. It was a hot summer night. I remember I'm in my police academy uniform, and it's like, uh, fuck me. You know, I'm, I don't want to walk because you look like a bus driver. That was the uniform back then. I didn't want to walk around like that. So anyway, I walk up to my brother's apartment, and I could smell it coming through the door. I could smell death. I had smelt it when I was growing up, you know. I knew what it smelled like. So I try kicking the door in, I can't get it open. There's no cell phones back then, there's no working pay phones anywhere, so I can't call anybody for help. I used, they had, it was a steel garbage can that must have weighed 50 pounds at the time, it was like using a battering ram. And I used that to break in the door. And then the smell really hit me. He had been dead for about four days. Uh, He still had the needle in his arm. And here's the irony of it all. I, the last conversation I had with my brother who died, I had an argument with him too. I actually had a fist fight with him. And that's how the last time I saw him was when me and him got into a fight. And <laughs> again, I never got a chance to say, I'm sorry about the fight, you know, we're brothers. And now I'm looking at him, he's dead. The cops show up and they see I'm in a police academy uniform. And the lieutenant that showed up started giving me shit. He started grilling me. There's heroin all over this apartment. You're in the police academy. I said, whoa, whoa, back the fuck up. This is my brother. I I don't live here. I live with my mother. I said, what are you talking about? He's like, well, this has got to be investigated. Like, no empathy at all. Like, hey, this is my my dead brother was sitting in front of What the fuck is, you smell this? He's been dead for four days. Right there and then, I learned a quick lesson from that son of a bitch that night. I'm thinking to myself, you're a piece of shit. If you treat me like this, I can only imagine how you treat the fucking public. You know, I'm one of your own, or gonna be one of your own, and you treat me like this, you motherfucker. 
So I, I right there and then I said, you know what? I will never ever treat anybody that way unless they deserve to be treated that way. And I've lived that way my whole life. I treat people accordingly. Now I gotta go tell my mother that my brother's dead. Greatest notification ever, right? Yeah. I did thousands of them while I was in the police department. And that one, telling my mother that he was gone, was a tough one. But you know, I looked at my mother and she had a look of relief on her face, which was almost eerie. And I thought about it later on. I says, yeah, she's been dealing with this fucking idiot and his habit for how many years? And now she doesn't have to worry about him anymore. So I got two debts now. My father, my brother, I'm in the police academy. I graduate. Because I was such a street thug, I became a really good street cop. You know the phrase, it takes a thief to catch a thief? It's actually true, believe it or not. Even during walking footposts, and I've seen a kid with a textbook in his hand. I'm walking on Myrtle Avenue in Brooklyn, and I'm like, it's fucking 10 o'clock at night. This jerk off thinks he's got me fooled. I walk over to him, I says, let me see your book. He's like, why? I says, give me the fucking book. I know what's in it because I did the same exact thing six years earlier. So I said, who are you bullshitting? I opened a book and sure as shit, it's all cut out and he's got bags of weed in there. So I just threw the fucking weed down the sewer and I kicked him in his ass. And I said, get the fuck out of here. If I ever see you again, I'm going to knock you the fuck out. So get out of here. And that's what I call policing, you know. You let the guy know, listen, you ain't going to get over on me. And, he, you know, I never saw that kid again. So maybe I did something good for him. You know, I didn't have to arrest him. We're going to lock him up for. He did, he did the same exact thing I was doing fucking five years earlier. So I'm like, I can't lock this kid up. And it's weed. You know, what the fuck? You know, my police career was pretty, uh, pretty, pretty quickly, uh, moved, moved pretty fast because working my way up to homicide, I did on my own. Nobody made a fucking phone call once for me. I went to plain clothes because of all the arrests I made in uniform. I went from plain clothes to narcotics because I was so active in plain clothes. Got my gold shield, and all I wanted to do was be a detective and be in a detective squad. Because I used to look at those guys, and it brought me back to the recruiter. It brought me back to the days of my father and his brothers and how squared away they always were. And when the detectives showed up in their suits, I'd look at them, and I'm like, wow, here they come. You know, get the fuck out of the way. Here comes the big boys. And that's who I wanted to be. And I wind up being that guy that when I showed up, everybody knew, hey, Steve and his partners are here. Let them take over and let them do what they got to do. Which brings me to a homicide case I had back in 2002. I'm sitting in my office. I had just finished working on a double homicide in Washington Heights. It was a drug dealing thing. It was a home invasion. And it was a guy and a woman that got murdered and it was a long five days working on this case and uh, you know we made an arrest so it was you know typical ghetto drug dealers killing drug dealer type stuff so it was not nothing I wasn't used to seeing I mean you can't appreciate what a bloody mess it could be until you're up close and personal it's almost like it's so fucked up it's not real when you see these dead bodies it's like wow is that even real but know what brings you home to that? The smells that go with it. And those smells with the actual scene, put those two together, it's shit you'll never forget. I still to this day don't forget it. I was in a morgue a couple of weeks ago, and as soon as I walked in, I'm like, man, that smell. Just, I remember this so well. 
So I'm working one night in Homicide, and uh, the next thing I know, I get a phone call. Hey, Steve, this is so-and-so from the 2-3 Detective Squad. We got four people stabbed, one kid's likely to take him over to the hospital. So I didn't think anything of it that night. I said, all right, I'm going to go to the hospital, see if I can get something from the kid. If he's not, if he doesn't go out of the picture, maybe I can get a statement before he dies. This is what I'm thinking, because I'm just thinking like a homicide guy, and I'm not thinking like I can give a shit about this. It's just another homicide. I didn't realize the kid that got stabbed was 13 years old. So I get to the hospital in their uh, triage area. I said, where's the kid? And he's behind a curtain. As I'm walking in behind the curtain, I see the doctor taking the chest plate. They already opened the kid up. They took the chest plate off and they're massaging his heart by hand. Now I've seen this a million times. It's not something I didn't see before. But when I looked at the kid, I'm like, fuck, he's 13 years old. I got to get the motherfucker that did this, because this is pissing me off. The kid's DOA at the hospital. He was dead before they even cracked him open. There was blood everywhere. So now the parents are there at the hospital. The doctor lets him know that he died. And now they're hysterical. Now picture two Spanish parents that hardly speak English and their 13 year old kid is dead and I gotta go up to them and I have to I have to talk to them to see if they know anything that might help my case because time's of an essence on a homicide I told my partner I says uh, I gotta talk to the parents we gotta find out if they know anything and they're like oh he's a good boy and I'm like yeah alright whatever they all say that shit you know but when I spoke to the parents I was thinking to myself wow these are really good people you know, these are really sweet immigrant Dominicans that you could tell that they were just hardworking family. And their family meant everything to them. And now I'm trying to get information from them, and they were just hysterical. They hardly speak English. My partner spoke Spanish, thank God. But we couldn't get anything from them that would help the case because they're like, he's a good boy. He doesn't do anything. He says he hangs out downstairs with his friends playing ball in the projects. And I'm like, yeah, all right, so... That's typical. Nothing crazy there. All right, so he's dead. The parents can't help me. What do we do? What do we do is we go back to the scene. So we go to the scene. They took the other three kids that were stabbed to a different hospital because it wasn't a trauma unit. So they took them to a different one. They took this kid to a trauma unit. So I couldn't even talk to the other victims yet to see what was going on with them. But there was another team of detectives at that hospital talking to them, trying to get the information on who might have did this. So now I go back to the crime scene, it's all caught off, and I see the blood against the car. I'm like, well, this is fucking odd. Why is there blood against the car? All right, I guess when he stabbed the kid, he fell back, and he hit the car, and, you know, that was it. Turns out, I get a phone call from one of the detectives at the hospital with one of the victims, the other victims that survived, and he says, yeah, he says, the kid he killed wasn't even involved in the fight. He was just sitting on the car watching. I said, what? What are you talking about? He said, yeah, the DOA had nothing to do with this. He says, yeah, the other victim was like 19, 20 years old. This kid was just there watching it. So I'm like, well, that's fucked. What happened here? So now I do my street thing because I'm a good street cop. And I just walk around the projects, checking things out, being quiet, hands in my pocket. And I get some kid comes up to me, and he's like standing behind me. He says, yo, 
the kid that did this, he's Spanish, he's got green eyes, and he hangs out at the YMCA down on 100 and something street. I'm like, okay, Spanish kid with green eyes, that's pretty rare. I'm making like he's not talking to me, so I cover my mouth, you know, I'm like, well, how, how old do you think this fucking kid is, you know? And I'm trying to get an interview without anybody knowing that this kid's talking to me in the middle of the projects. Now, this is nighttime, in the fucking summer, in the middle of the projects in Spanish Harlem. So now try picture me, fucking Guido, in his fucking pinstripe suit. But for some reason, he knew he could talk to me. And he knew I wasn't going to give him up. So I guess that comes off and the streets have their own language. And he gives me this tip. So I called the guys at the hospital that interviewing the three other guys that survived. And they gave the same description of the kid. But they didn't know where he was from. We didn't know it at the time, but... This kid had interactions with those three scumbags at the hospital that didn't die over and over again. I didn't know why they had interaction with the guy. They didn't say they had interaction with him. But when the investigation kept going, we wound up getting him identified. And the reason we got him identified was we went to the YMCA and got photos of all the kids that had IDs there. Sure as shit, there's only one Spanish kid with green fucking eyes that goes to that place. One of my guys took the photo array to the three guys that got stabbed by him, and they 100% identified him. He's 16. We go to the house to see if he's there, and he's not there. All right, great. We know who he is, so I talked to him. I said, listen, we don't know what happened that night. All we know is he stabbed four people, and he killed one for no fucking reason. And she's like, whoa, 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 detective, relax. You don't understand what's going on here. Like, what do you mean? And I'm thinking to myself, who the fuck are you talking to? I know what's going on here. Turned out, that kid was getting beat up every fucking day by these three scumbags as he was walking home. And no matter where he went, he said, my, try going this way. They used to follow me coming out of the YMCA. They robbed me six, seven times. So this kid was a victim just like I was when I was 13. And from the time I was 13 and I started carrying a weapon, I'm thinking to myself, fuck this kid. What happened to him happened to me. And I'm like, fuck, maybe he's not such a bad kid. So we, we find out he had no arrest record either. That was the other thing. This kid never been in trouble. He was a good student. He was, uh, you know, he was on a swim team. I'm thinking to myself, well, fuck. He probably started carrying a knife because he got beat up just like I started fucking doing after I got jumped. I'm like, fuck me. I could either have been that victim in the hospital because I, they could have killed me that fucking night or I could have been the guy who did the murder. And, 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 and my whole youth just came fucking rushing back into my head like how lucky I've been. Now the kid is not a bad kid. The kid that's dead, the re what happened was when we pieced it all together, he was just sitting there watching the fight, leaning up against the car. The kid that did the murder went into a rage and just started slashing at everybody that came near him. He saw this kid on the car and he just stabbed him right in the fucking chest. Our victim had nothing at all to do with it. So you talk about a tragedy? I mean, this is the kind of shit that happens in the ghetto and cops and the people that live there are the ones that have to deal with this crap. People who lived up on the Upper East Side have no fucking clue what's going on in life. They don't have a fucking iota of what really is happening on the street. So. Thinking, well, we, this kid's got to get arrested, obviously, you know, so we start looking for him. He's not, he's not at the house. So I decide with, with the guy from one of the precincts that it happened, and I said, 
you know what, let's go to the building in the projects because they have the office that the management office keeps all paperwork in regards to anything that happens in the apartment that somebody lives in. So I looked through the folder and sure as shit, the mother got into a domestic and her sister was marked down as a witness and she had an address in the Bronx. I said, I'll bet this fucking kid's up in the Bronx at his, at his hand's house. Sure enough, take two teams, me and my one guy and another team, knock on the door. I said, we hear this, you know, Luis, we know Luis is here, so just tell him to come on out. No, you're, no, Luis ain't here. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, detective. I said, listen, it's easier if he just turns himself in. The more he runs, it's going to look worse for him. I know what happened. I know what happened. This poor kid shouldn't have died, but then again, I know what was going on with your nephew. Next thing I know, I see that it's a hallway. And I hear shuffling, and I, the kid turns the corner. I see those fucking green eyes just looking at me. I just gave him that nod, like, come on, you know, we got to go. You know that. I remember thinking to myself how respectful he was. And he's like, hi, detective. I'm Luis. I know you're looking for me, but I have a lawyer's card. I want you to have it. They told me not to talk to anybody. I have, a, I have an attorney. And... Putting the handcuffs on that kid, this rush of emotion that came over me, all I kept thinking to myself is, fuck, this could have been me. It was so easily could have been me. I got lucky. So I cuff him up, and I can, he's trembling, and he's not like the typical mutt that I always arrested, you know, like real thugged out. He wasn't that kid. Driving back to the station house with him that night, and I said to him, uh, I know what you went through, brother. I, I get it. It's okay. I get it. And he just said to me, he says, I didn't mean for it to happen. I, I hope that kid's life changed. I, I hope jail didn't fuck him up. He deserved to go to jail, but again, the streets dictated what the fuck happened. The streets dictated this. Nothing else. The streets did it. You have one kid that didn't do anything wrong. And another kid was doing nothing wrong. And three other fucking scumbags that should be in the fucking ground. You know, people cause other people to do things. And then there's people that get caught in a crossfire. Like, if you took my life and put it into a spin where you could see your whole life revolving, that case took me to that level of just, like, picturing my life just circling around me and, like, fuck, that could have been me there. That could have been me here. Oh, shit, you know. My whole life's been nothing but a combat zone. Uh, I've been officially diagnosed with PTSD by the government, so between what I saw in the streets of New York as a cop, then a homicide detective, and then 9-11 and all this other stuff, you know, I guess it all caught up to me, and uh, it is what it is. Everybody's got PTSD of some sort or another. Everybody's been traumatized. I don't, I don't dwell on it. I actually always thought it was a, a cop-out. And then I realized it's really not a cop-out. People need help. I need help. So I do go to a therapist now. And for me to admit that, that's, that's a lot. You know, it's hard for a guy like me to admit that I would actually see a therapist. That one particular case just took me so far back into my life of how I grew up and the things that happened to me and how things can just turn on a dime. You know, that recruiter saved my life, basically over a game of fucking pool.
um, my my story is like somewhat serious, but uh, before I I started, I I do want to just ask something. Um, are there any guys here in the audience tonight who have a trust fund and are also like in an old timey bluegrass band? <laughs> You know, like maybe you play like like a banjo or like an authentic jug. Um, the the reason I ask is um, I'm really horny and I want to have sex tonight. And the only way that I can come is if um, a guy with a trust fund who's also in an old timey bluegrass band with like a banjo or an authentic jug corrects me about something. You know, like, um, actually, um, jizz! <laughs> Just putting it out there. All right, so, uh, every woman I know uh, has had a life-changing experience with a delusional man. Or 12. <laughs> Work! <laughs> <laughs> And for the, the worst of them in these cases um, do so much havoc to her spirit that she essentially has to like crawl through the, the emotional sewage of Shawshank <laughs> for like a year and a half at least before coming through the other side of it and being like, oh my God, I'm not garbage. I've just been going through the garbage and the horseshit of the delusional man. And, um, you know, let's just hope that we as a nation don't do that to ourselves. <laughs> Trump OJ 2016. <laughs> so, uh, tonight... I will tell you the story of um, one particularly special, delusional man who came into my life. And I think many of you, particularly women, will relate to this story and hopefully enjoy it. And um, out of respect for this man's privacy, we're gonna call him Jizz. Yeah. <laughs> out of respect. His name isn't really Jizz, but I'm gonna call him that to be nice. Uh, when I was in college, I went to see a band play, and a friend of mine introduced me to the lead singer. This was Jizz, and um, he had these big brown eyes and this like shaggy, brownish reddish hair, and like an aquiline nose, and like kind of a full mouth. And I was just like, "Shit, <laughs> you are cute." And um, then, it, and also, he was sort of shy in person, but he was like very ferocious on stage. And the combination was just very, you know, damn jizzle, you know. <laughs> so then we met, and there was this very intense connection between the two of us that wasn't just attraction. It was like one of those things that 
you know, even if you just meet a stranger briefly and you just like, you're not necessarily even attracted to them or anything, you're just like, did we know each other in a past life? You just sort of like feel something with certain people. And he and I definitely had that in addition to this attraction. And we just kind of knew something was going to happen between us. And it did. Um, over the span of about a year and a half, Jizz and I became very close friends. <laughs> I'm totally committing to Jizz, so just get used to it. His name's Jizz. Uh, he and I became very close friends, and although we were attracted to each other, we didn't really do anything because, or rather, I couldn't do anything because I had a boyfriend back home. During this very intense time, this year-and-a-half friendship, Jizz professed to be in love with me. He really encouraged me to leave my boyfriend for him. And he wrote me love songs that were just like, <laughs> this, you know, it was pretty intense stuff. And I did break up with my boyfriend after a year and a half of this friendship with Jizz um, because we were growing apart just as you do as young college kids, you know, long distance, but also because I really fell in love with Jizz. So, you know, that's kind of what happened. <laughs> And when I returned to school, this guy and I had never even kissed, like nothing. We returned to school and we pretty much had sex, like right away. It was a very intense experience. It was really special. And then I never heard from him again. Oh. Nothing. Like after a year and a half of like the love songs and break up with your boyfriend, I'm so in love with you and like all this stuff. We sleep together, nothing. It was fucked up. So six months later, I see him on campus. We didn't have the same classes or anything, so it was actually sort of unusual to run into each other. And I saw him, and I confronted him about this, and I was like, what the fuck? You know, in addition to us having sex, also we were close friends. I don't understand this. And he explained to me that he was in love with me and all this stuff and he was really freaked out after we had sex and he just kind of like you know ran away and he asked me to let him back into my life and I very warily over the course of a month like kind of agreed and then we became friends again and then over time he and I ended up sleeping together again and guess what happened <laughs> never heard from him again so <clears throat> Over the years, after experiencing like sort of an assortment of guys doing similar things, although on a much less intense level, I mean, how many women in here have slept with a guy and then never heard from him again? I mean, it's pretty common, you know. Um, and how many have like gone on one date with a guy and then he's been like, I don't want anything serious. And you're like, <laughs> like calm down. I know you can all relate to this. Yeah. Um, and uh, how many of you dated Steve from Blue's Clues and had to listen to him complain in his million dollar loft about how yeah. nobody takes me seriously as an actor because I'm Steve from Blue's Clues. <laughs> Because I did, can you tell? Uh, anyway, I just started seeing that a lot of these guys are like trying to get their power on by like using women to get that power on, you know? 
And it just made me go, hmm. And it gave me a little insight into jizz and what happened there. Years later, 2011, I log on to Facebook and I have a friend request from Jizz. Mm -hmm. And of course, I accept, rub my hands, and set my motherfucking trap. Now, every now and then he comments on my stuff and, you know, I have to say I was surprised at how his life turned out. It was very suburban and he was married and had a kid. He wasn't doing music at all and it just seemed very kind of beige. Um, and so anyway, I click like or whatever. And then, but then I wait until we're in a thread where there are a lot of his college friends, a lot of our mutual college friends. And then I type this. You know, Jizz, it's pretty funny how we're Facebook friends now. After we were friends for a year and a half, you progressed to being in love with me. We slept together and I never heard from you again. Then when I gave you another chance, I did. We resumed our friendship, slept together, and then I never heard from you again. (laughs) Then he goes, oh, wow, that's the way it is. And I was like, yep. And I unfriended him and did a happy jig. Uh -uh. Do you think it's over? No. LOL, Jizz emails me three years later. Subject, an apology. (laughs) Again, the theme for tonight is, ladies and gentlemen, delusion. (laughs) I'm sorry. There's a hundred million thousand other things. I want slash have slash need to say to, and I don't know if you have any desire to hear them, but this is the first thing. I am sorry, deeply, sincerely, sorry. I'm sorry I didn't call you. I don't know why I didn't call you. I have been a stupid, dumb man for many years, and I'd like to think I'm not as stupid or dumb now as I was years ago, but that's no excuse. <laughs> oh my God, yes. I'm sorry that I hurt you. I'm sorry that you were, as of our last Facebook correspondence. <laughs> Still angry. I've been thinking about that ever since because it was so upsetting to me. In recent months, I started going back into college era journals. I basically found you written on almost every page 
a thousand vivid memories started flooding my brain and I've been feeling like a jackass. <laughs> I'm sorry to say it's taken me so long to say this. I've been trying to figure out what to say so long. Seriously, a long time we're talking about here. <laughs> And what I should have said, straight out, was, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've not had you as a friend. Above all else, this is the thing I most regret. You are a brilliant, amazing, inspiring woman. And I would have loved to have seen you blossom and grow. And this is in italics. <laughs> the following word is in italics. When I think about you, your absence looms larger than anybody's. It always has. To not know you, to not be able to celebrate and cheer you on, that's been an absolute killer on me. That's on me. I failed you. That's true. I don't have an ulterior motive here. I don't really know what happens next. Honestly, I would love to get to know you again. Motherfucker divorced, okay? Like, that's why we're getting this email. <clears throat> I mean, I don't know if he is, I don't give a fuck, but like, <laughs> it's just so funny to me. Honestly, I would love to get to know you again, but I felt rather than simply lurking in the background and not actually saying anything, I should be upfront with you. You deserve that. You deserve way more than that. And frankly, I don't even know where to begin in that regard. I hope you'll accept my apology. Jizz. years later. <laughs> My reply. <laughs> uh, hey. <laughs> I haven't replied because I haven't had time. Replying is nowhere on the to-do list of my life. I mean, ugh, just your email is ridiculous. A simple apology would have been way better than this long and weirdly masturbatory redundant nonsense. 
You're trying so hard to be special. You obviously have a strangely grandiose opinion of yourself, and I haven't thought about you in years. Yeah. Like, when you friended me on Facebook, I was like, oh, cool, I'm gonna enjoy this, and I did, because I was hurt for a long time. My head got fucked up, but after a while, I was just like, okay, he's a chode. Now, for those of you who don't know what a chode is, Women, women and men, particularly women, I think, like to uh, call like men who are like annoying and you know turds, you know, like douchebags. To me, I just don't think it, that's dismissive enough. A chode is the area between a man's sack and his asshole. Some people call it the taint, but I prefer chode. So okay, he's he's a chode, like so many chodes. And my self-esteem took a hit because I didn't know what I was capable of accomplishing. Whatever. Lots of women go through these unremarkable chodes in life who are subconsciously motivated by the need to feel like they're special by hurting women. Yes. Did y'all get that? Because there's some chattering. Say it again. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think there's maybe some chode discussion, which is cool. I'm happy to go back. Say it again. I'm happy to go back. No problem at all. Okay, so he's a chode. He's a chode like so many chodes and my self-esteem took a hit because I didn't know what I was capable of accomplishing. Whatever, lots of women go through these unremarkable chodes in life who are subconsciously motivated by the need to feel like they're special by hurting women. And that's pretty much the summation of it. Oh, yeah, and the reason I'm replying now is because I read your email on stage last night because I didn't feel like preparing anything. I just read it. (laughs) And everyone groaned and laughed. Oh, and please don't reply or contact me ever again. It'll just annoy me and I'm busy. Blossoming and becoming? Good Lord, ha ha ha. All right now, I feel a little bad. See a shrink if you're not already and work on getting over yourself, okay? Message still stands, do not reply to me, please. Adios. But, I already sent that, but just between us, it got me thinking that I was being too harsh on him because after all, I I really wasn't angry with him anymore. Um, I was just annoyed that like I kind of had to deal with it and I just wanted to put it behind me peacefully So I closed with this. I, I wrote him another message about five minutes later that said this Okay, jizz I feel a little bad now Everything I said was true And I needed to be done with this because I suspected that you've probably been thinking that the reason I hadn't responded was because I was still angry and hurt, which isn't the case at all. I just truly have not been caring about this. The bottom line is that I'm sure you feel terribly about hurting me and I forgive you. However, this email is not respectful of me. It is self-indulgent. You don't even say, dear Livia, are you serious? So, for the sake of the women in your life, currently and going forward, I needed to let you know what was up. I stand by everything I said, and I think you need to get real with the things that I mentioned. I wish you well, 
It's never too late to be a better person. I know from personal experience that digging deep and making amends is possible, provided you are truly respectful of others and honest with yourself. The message still stands that I don't want to hear from you, so please respect that. (laughs) Take care. And that was it. So that was the end of my correspondence with Jizz. So, you know, I'm sort of left with what to say to you guys. You know what I mean? Like, I feel at peace with it. Um, I, I don't, I'm sure I'm never gonna hear from this guy again, and that's fine. But I just wonder, like, there, I mean, so many people here connected with that delusional email. Like, how many of you have these people in your lives <laughs> who are just so fucking, like, insanely out of touch with how, like, dumb and stupid their choices are and how dumb and stupid they sound, right? And, like, wouldn't it be nice if you could just like say something to them or like just give them a nice towel snap in the ass in front of like a whole bunch of people and then just be like, this is you, this is you. It's tough, but it makes it easier when you don't really care about the person. (laughs) So yeah, in conclusion, it just feels good to be on this stage with you and share this with you because that was a really hard experience for me for many years. And I really am like way, way, way beyond it. I feel really good and it just is very much like the cherry on top of the sundae too. (laughs) To share it with you and have you all enjoy it too and to get it, right? You all have these people in your lives. Particularly the ladies. Thank you very much. I'm Livia Scott. Thank you. This is Risk. This is a Junkie XL remix of Elvis Presley. We just heard from Livia Scott. Look Livia up at livia-land.com. Now, our final story for tonight comes from a newbie, someone who had never shared a story live on stage before. Stephanie Streeter really blew us away when we visited Cleveland. It was a quieter sort of show because it was at the Cleveland Public Library, but a more hushed sort of atmosphere was perfectly suited to Stephanie's story. Here she is now, Stephanie Streeter, with a story we call For April.
So I uh, moved to Cleveland five years ago, right after graduating art school. And my cousin owns a glass studio here. He gave me a job right out of college. And I am from a really rural town in Tennessee, so moving to this city was a huge deal for me, and I was so excited. I got a job to supplement my income from the studio at a comedy club downtown where I worked as a cocktail waitress. I had been living in the city for about six months, and it's February, one night after a particularly long and exhausting shift at the club, my two friends, Ryan, Tara, and I, decided to grab a quick drink around the corner at a bar. The snow is coming down pretty heavily, and we walk in the bar just in time for last call, so we have our one drink, and I tell my friends that I'll give them a ride home. We get in my car, and I pull onto Superior Avenue, right behind this large black SUV, and I've only been driving for about a minute when I see from above the car, from the hood of the car, there come flying these shapes. And I remember thinking that they just looked like sacks of laundry. I only just have time to think, what the hell is that? When I see lying in front of my car, there is a woman. My friend Ryan starts to scream over and over again, those are people, those are people, and I hit the brakes, but it's too late, and I feel my car hit and go over. So Ryan is still screaming, and Tara is in the back seat, and I can hear her breathing really heavily, and I feel like I'm paralyzed, but I pull my car over, and I get out my cell phone to call 911, and I look up just in time to see that black SUV go straight through a red light and speed over the bridge. So I'm on phone with 911, and I don't remember anything clearly after this point. I know that I stay on the phone with the operator and that I walk back about the 10 yards to where the accident occurred, and my friend Ryan is standing in the snow in just his T-shirt, and I put my arms around him because he's shivering. I was told later it was because he had taken off his jacket and his sweater and he placed it over one of the girls who was lying in the road. The police arrive, and I don't know what I say to them, but I'm soon in the back of a squad car, and Ryan and Tara are placed in there with me for a couple minutes, and Tara's crying hysterically, and she places her hand softly on my arm, and she tells me, Stephanie, I heard the paramedics talking, and there is a girl trapped under your car. So my only reaction is just denial. I just say out loud over and over again, it's not my car. It's somebody else's car. There's no way that that's my car. Ryan and Tara are taken away, and I am taken to the Justice Center where I'm booked. And as I'm emptying out my pockets onto the counter, no one is telling me what's going on. No one is giving me a straight answer. And I ask out loud to whoever will listen, how long am I going to be here? And a female officer who's working on the computer says with this flat voice, just equal parts, disdain and annoyance, a long time. So I am then taken to a room where two female officers administer a search, and they are equally disdainful, and their commands are sharp and brief. So I'm put into a cage where there's a phone, and I'm told that I can make phone calls. I thankfully remember my cousin's number, the one who hired me at the studio. But he doesn't pick up right away because it's very late at night. And from behind me, I can hear these harsh male voices hurling abuse at me. And they're catcalling and they're threatening to rape me. And they're just saying disgusting things, which are the first things my cousin hears when he picks up the phone. 
I am hysterical and I'm crying, but he calms me down just enough to figure out what's happened and he promises me that he's on it and he's gonna get me out by morning. So I'm then led to a group holding cell where an officer opens the door and flips on a light so I'm able to see that the floor is littered with sleeping women covered in these institutional scratchy blankets. The back corner is open so I begin to tiptoe back there but before I make it, the officer closes the door, shuts the light and I stumble into a couple of the sleeping girls who just kind of curse and grunt at me. And I sit down in the darkness in that corner and the room is freezing and I am more afraid in the dark surrounded by strangers than I have ever been in my entire life. And all I can see over and over again is that accident and I see that black SUV drive straight through the red light never slowing down after hitting three people in the middle of the road. So eventually the lights come on, which I guess means that it's morning. Uh, officer comes to the cell and tells me that uh, there's a lawyer here to speak with me. So I'm placed in one of those cubicles where there's the heavy glass plate separating you uh, between two phones. And as I sit down, there's a really beautiful older woman. She walks in and her face is full of kindness and concern. And she's followed by my cousin's business partner, Craig, who's my boss at the studio where I work. And he picks up the phone and introduces me to his mother, Barbara, who is a lawyer, though not the kind that I need. So she picks up the phone and she says, hi, Stephanie, I am so sorry that this has happened and I'm here to give you legal advice until your father can find an appropriate defense attorney for you. And she tells me that I'm not to speak to anyone until that lawyer is present and then there's this strange long pause and she says, I have to tell you that one of the girls from the accident has died. It was the one who was dragged under your car and my body just turns to ice and I hear words in the phone but they're just hitting me in the head like bricks over and over again and Craig takes the phone from his mother and he begins to try to comfort me. He tells me that, Stephanie, I know people who have been through this situation before. I know because of that that you can get through this and you can continue to live your life and find a way to be happy. Craig had been in recovery and AA for years and I know he means what he says and that his words are meant to comfort me, but it just fills me with darkness and I can't imagine a future so bleak. It's time for them to go and Craig, when he stands up, places his hand up against the glass. And I've seen that done in movies before and I've always thought that it's just really cheesy, but in that moment to me, it meant everything. And as I place my hand against his on the glass, I'm filled with just this smallest amount of comfort. So I'm then taken to an individual holding cell, which is just disgusting. It looks like there's something like dried blood smeared on the wall and the mat is dirty and there's just a toilet and a sink. And the officer who locks me in tells me that there will be a detective appointed to my case Monday at the earliest. And it is Saturday at this point and it could be noon or it could be midnight, but it doesn't matter. And I just sink down to that mat and I'm consumed with grief. And I know that because in some way that I contributed to the death of a human being that my life no longer matters. I just keep replaying the accident over and over in my head if I can somehow just go back in time and find a way to stop my car to save that life. All I can think about is that girl. I'm taken to uh, get my mug shots done and my fingerprints processed. The officers working that station is the first person uh, to treat me like a human being since this happened. He's not exactly 
kind to me, but he's not scowling and he's not issuing those sharp, brief commands. And as he's going through my information, he talks to me about my case a little bit, and it becomes very clear that the police do not believe there is another vehicle involved. There's no evidence of it, and they only think it's me. I'm being held responsible for this. So I desperately begin to tell him about everything that I remember, everything that happened about that black SUV. And he kind of steps back and looks at me as if to size me up, and he's trying to decide if I'm the kind of person who would lie about something like this. And after a moment, he flips back through my paperwork, and he just says, you should pray, you should talk to God, and talk to your higher power, and keep your spirits up. It doesn't exactly fill me with the comfort that I was hoping for, but I do feel that I've been heard by this officer and that he believes my side of the story. He must have said something to someone because after a long sleepless night in my cell, I wake up, the lights come on, and there's an officer present who tells me that a detective has been assigned to my case and would be in shortly to speak with me. It's Sunday morning now, and I was told originally Monday at the soonest. So I'm led to a room for questioning. The detective enters the room, and he kind of just looks like my dad, and he actually smiles at me. And as he spreads the paperwork out on the table, um, he greets me and says, Stephanie, I've just watched the video footage from the traffic camera at the intersection where this accident occurred, and would you please go over everything with me? The news that there is video footage from the accident is amazing, but I don't allow myself to feel any hope as I begin to recount everything that I remember with him. I tell him about that black SUV, how I saw it speed away, and how I tried to stop my car, but there just wasn't any time. And he's nodding in agreement with everything that I say, and he says, yes, we see that black SUV. We can't pull a license plate number off the video footage because of the snow, and the snow is also, you know, because of the poor visibility where you couldn't make out those victims as people. And then he says, you'll be happy to know that everyone from the accident has survived and they're going to be okay. My jaw just drops open, my hands are at my chest, and I only stammer like I was told someone had died. And his eyes are kind of wide with confusion. He says, no, no, I don't know who would have provided you with that information, but it's incorrect. So I walk out of the Justice Center a few hours later, and I'm simultaneously filled with the greatest relief and gratitude and the most intense confusion and still the darkest depression I've ever felt in my life. My cousin pulls up to get me, and I rush into his car into this big, warm hug, and I feel for the first time in days that I might start to regain some semblance of the life that I had begun to build before this all happened. But in the next few days, I have to keep reminding myself over and over again that she's alive because this feeling that I had contributed to the death of another person, it didn't just go away. I just kind of blankly stared at walls in between phone calls with lawyers and with family. And I received updates about the girl whose name was April. She was out of the ICU and she was stable and she'd be released soon. I really wanted to reach out to her and to send flowers or a letter, but my lawyers told me that they had learned that her family's intention was to sue me, which came as no shock and I completely understood. I couldn't even begin to imagine the pain that she had been through. And I mean, I had witnessed was so horrific and I wasn't even a person who was injured. 
So I don't talk to her, but a week goes by, I go back to work at the studio and I look down at my phone and there is a voicemail. And I listen to it and I hear a really sweet, timid voice and it's April. And I don't remember exactly what she says because I'm in shock, uh, but I do remember her saying, I just wanna talk to you. I don't even know what you look like, but I just wanna say hi. And then the next day there's a message from her on Facebook as well. And I talk to my lawyers and they tell me that I shouldn't respond. Anything that I say can be taken as an admission of guilt and used against me in a lawsuit. But it just feels so mean and so cold not to reach out back to her. I just want to tell her that I'm so glad she's okay. But I listen to my legal counsel and I let the comfort and love of my friends and family surround me. And as days go by, weeks and then months, I begin to feel okay with what's happened. But the guilt that I have from not reaching back out to her just keeps me up at night. And I still think of her. When I initially pitched this story, I thought that to come full circle with it, that I should finally break the silence between us. But it's been four years now. And with all of the healing that she must have had to go through and all of the pain, all of the suffering, for me to find relief from that guilt, it just isn't enough. So if there's any chance that she ever hears this story, I would just like to say, I'm so glad that you're alive. And I've thought of you almost every day since the accident. And there's nothing that I wish for more in my heart than your happiness. Thank you. I thought I saw the devil this morning Looking in the mirror, drop of rum on my tongue With a warning To help me see myself clearer I never meant to start a fire I never meant to make you bleed I'll be a better man today I'll be good, I'll be good And I'll love the world like I should Yeah, I'll be good, I'll be good For all of the time That I never could That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is James Young behind me now. And thanks again to our wonderfully fun and fabulous sponsor, Loot Crate, the monthly subscription box for geeks, gamers, and pop culture nerds. Pop culture is full of brave new worlds and societies in flux that don't always turn out for the best. So this month's theme, June's theme for Loot Crate, 
will be dystopia. And that means that the gadgets and toys and memorabilia and uh, collectibles in the box this time around will refer to RoboCop and Terminator 2 and The Matrix and new favorites Bioshock Infinite and Fallout 4. There's a figure in there, collectibles, a, a dystoporific monthly tea. You only have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific time to subscribe and receive this month's crate. And when that cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com slash risk and enter the code risk to save $3 on your new subscription today. That's L-O-O-T-C-R-A-T-E dot com slash risk and enter the code risk. Here's where Risk is coming next on June 17th. We're in Philadelphia. On June 18th, we are at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. Our new home, the Bootleg, in Los Angeles on June 18th. On June 22nd, we are back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. That's going to be a super fun show. Josh Gondelman, T.S. Madison, pretty sure Hari Kondabolu is going to be there. On June 25th, we're at St. Louis. We're in St. Louis on June 25th. Come on out, St. Louis. That's going to be a great show. On July 8th, we're in San Francisco, and we're still taking pitches for that. So the theme is Resonant San Francisco. So go to the submissions page at risk-show.com to pitch us. On July 27th, we are back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. On July 30th, we're back at the Bootleg in Los Angeles. On August 5th, we are in Toronto. Toronto, folks. So pitch us. The theme is disaster. That's a great theme. So pitch us at the submissions page at wrist-show.com, Toronto, folks. And that's about it for now. Of course, you know, we are always taking pitches, though, from anyone, anywhere in the world. If you just go to that submissions page, we're looking for all kinds of stories from people of all walks of life. So encourage your friends to send in their pitches because, you know, we workshop with people. We help people to shape and share their stories. And if you'd like a little training on that, you know, get even a little bit more in-depth on that sort of thing, just check us out at thestorystudio.org. We've got one-on-one training. We've got video courses you can take online in your own time. We've got corporate workshops that we do with entire staffs of companies. Check us out at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>